Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by Dr. Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy, and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. Recently, I became aware of a very interesting case in the Netherlands involving a chiropractor and a patient who sadly experienced a cervical artery dissection. The court judgment concluded that the artery dissection could not be proved to be the result as the care provided by the chiropractor. The judge's reasons for this are very interesting and have potential implications for these rare cases should they occur in other countries such as here in Australia. Now, to talk us through the issues of this very interesting case, I'm joined by Australia's leading chiropractic medico-legal expert, none other than Dr. John Kelly. Now, John is a 1978 graduate and past principal of the Sydney College of Chiropractic. He lectured for 25 years in subjects of neurology, chiropractic philosophy, practice management at the Sydney College of Chiropractic and Macquarie University Department of Chiropractic. And he's been a continuous private practice for over 40 years. He has recently lectured at the Australian College of Chiropractic in South Australia. Over the last 35 years, he's been a consultant with over 390 medico-legal matters and has lectured extensively throughout Australia and also New Zealand. He was awarded the CAA New South Wales Chiropractor of the Year in 2005 and in 2020 was awarded Life Membership of the ACA. He's now retired from clinical work uh, from November uh, 21, but continues to remain very busy with his medico legal work, teaching and public speaking. Hi, John. Welcome to the ACA podcast. Yeah, thank you, Anthony. Pleasure to be here. I hope I can uh, hold up to the intro. Well, um, it is a very interesting case, and I've got no doubt that you'll provide a, a shine of light on this. So give us a little bit of a snapshot. This is obviously a, um, a patient who was, in fact, referred by a medical practitioner to a chiropractor in the Netherlands. Um, give a bit of a snapshot of what's happened here. Well, the very first thing we've got to start with, of course, is to make sure that people understand, and this case has attracted a lot of attention, as you've mentioned in your intro, uh, but this is a criminal matter. Uh, in which the chiropractor has been accused of grievous bodily harm to the patient as a, in, during the course of the treatment. Um, and, and two of the principles I'll tell you now that I've always reviewed medical legal matters with are these, and we must start with them up front. The first is that the devil is in the detail. And the second is you should never assume anything. And so if we start from that perspective, we then go hunting for two things accurate chronology and accurate, accurate clinical progression. And so, as you say, this chap was actually referred, in fact, not just to a chiropractor. His GP said, I want you to go and see a chiropractor or a physiotherapist. And he chose to see a chiropractor and did so on the 22nd of January, 2016. Um, and it's interesting to note that he was complaining of head and neck pain. And there was also the mention of swelling on the bottom left-hand side just underneath his skull. And um, he thought that the headache he was suffering in association with this was, was due to the lump in the back of his neck. Now, exactly what the lump is, and please understand, we are going on our information here on an English translation from a Dutch document. 
And I'm mm. not exactly sure how accurate that translation comes out as, but as far as we can find out, um, he sees this chiropractor and, and the first thing that happens is a questionnaire is filled in. And I think if there's anything we can um, perhaps alert our members to and the profession in Australia to is that if a, if a patient presents to you and you're giving them a questionnaire to complete prior to you actually seeing them, it behoves you to do more than that when they actually get into your rooms. You've got to back up the questionnaire they might have filled out voluntarily with specific questions of your own that identify what you're actually trying to target in on. So anyway, the court noted that he had a questionnaire that he completed. And one of the interesting aspects commented early on in the judgment was that the patient had the flu mm. when he saw the chiropractor. Now, this matter is discussed throughout the judgment, but I think the interesting thing that I thought they were alluding to is that I now have patients, or I now have literature rather, um, in French, German, Italian, American, and Brazilian um, uh, literature that, that refers to the fact that it looks like arterial dissection, cervical artery arterial dissection is more common at times of acute infection. One paper even went so far as to say at times of acute bacterial infection, but it's only one paper that actually mentions that. So, so when the Italians first mentioned it ages ago, we thought, oh, this is an errant finding, but now, Apparently, infection, acute, active, particularly active throat infection, um, seems to have um, an association with a higher incidence of, um, of arterial dissection of the neck. So I thought initially, this is where the judgment's going. They're hunting mm. down the possibility that this patient had an active flu at this time. Nonetheless, as we go through, you'll find out that later on during the actual delivery of evidence, it's decided and accepted by the court that, in fact, the patient did not have the flu. During evidence, he said, well, what I thought I had was a bit of a cold. And yeah. so you dump that whole concept of flu and they say, well, you might have had a bit of a cold. So this doesn't seem to present any contraindication to what was, what was planned. So that's the background on which the patient presents. And um, I don't know if you want me to charge straight into what happened next, but... Well, let me just ask a, a couple of questions there. Um, first of all, it'd be interesting to see how this now plays out in the COVID world, because obviously there was a time when chiropractors uh, would encourage people if they had those cold or flu-like symptoms to get in for an adjustment. Uh, and of course, that's all changed uh, significantly with, uh, with COVID. Um, it does appear uh, from the judgment um, that at least in the um, court's opinion, that the chiropractor adequately examined and uh, adequately informed the patient prior to uh, the commencement of any care. Um, so can you talk us through what that would involve? And they compared that to the professional standards of the Dutch Chiropractic Association. Look, it was, re it was really interesting because um, whilst the judgment didn't actually refer to um, the specific tests that were undertaken by the chiropractor. Um, and I wouldn't expect a judgment to go into each individual test that was undertaken. They, they were just satisfied that uh, an appropriate examination um, was actually adhered to. And what they referenced was the Dutch Chiropractors Association's expected standard. And I thought that was an interesting reference in itself that they should talk about um, an association's standard of examination. Um, 
they did seek to actually identify at least the fact that there were neurological tests that were done without stating what they were, um, that there was a review of the intake form. So here's the chiropractor saying, well, I know you fill, you filled this part out before I saw you and, and yeah. now I've reviewed it. Presumably there was more questioning that took place as a consequence of that review. Yes. And I observed the patient not only upon arrival, but during the process of my testing. And so mm. the court has actually noted um, those elements of examination. Um, uh, and then, interestingly enough, the court made a point of the fact that the pre-former questionnaire that was completed by the patient actually had a section on it that said, um, we need to refer you as an emergency issue if your head or neck pain is of such a severe intensity that it's unlike any headache you've ever had before, which is, you know, the thunderclap headache sort of subarachnoid hemorrhage type of presentation. Yes. Um, and the court, the court actually chose to identify that as an issue in terms of part of the competency of the pre-treatment process. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting in itself. But anyway, at the end of the day, the court says, well, look, I'm satisfied the examination process met the professional standard. Um, and, and before we actually get into the whole consent issue, um, there are a number of experts used in this case, as you can imagine. Uh, ex the person referred to as expert number one is a neurologist who, who it appears largely gave evidence um, from the perspective as being called for a witness from the patient's um, uh, side of view. But, but the second expert, expert number two, is actually a forensic physician from the Netherlands Forensic Institute. Um, and I've got to tell you, their view won the day on just about every issue yep. because they were totally objective in how they actually pursued all the issues, both examination, consent and treatment processes. So, um, in talking about whether there were contraindications to what was going to happen, um, expert number two said, look, um, the sections are sometimes already present and not yet manifest, though they may be accelerated by everyday movements. And so here's someone totally objectively stating, you know, these things can take place from almost anything. That's yeah. basically what he's saying. Um, he also said that a cervical manipulation could influence the course of an, uh, an existing dissection. And interestingly, they introduced an, a, a term very close to one of ours. Yes. They call these predisposing elements luxating factors. Yes. And a luxating factor was pretty most, I interpreted their term of luxating to be anything that predisposed you to this particular condition of dissection. But he said um, on the basis, this is expert number two, he said on the basis of the scientific publications, Head and neck complaints are so common, they're practically not a relevant indicator for a possible dissection. And I thought that was interesting in itself. And so therefore, uh, the court considered that headache, neck pain and swelling in the, head, in the neck were not a, uh, indications of a possible dissection present and therefore were not contraindications to proceed with cervical manipulation. Mm. Now, you have to agree pretty much with most of that because we haven't gone into the more... Um, neurologically obvious aspects of what would constitute a contraindication as we would as we would remember them to be yeah so so in that regard from the court's position this patient with this presentation did not have a contraindication 
to the processes that the chiropractor was about to perform. I want to However, take it. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, I just question, want to take please. a step back before we delve into where I think I know you're going to go, but uh, and, and just say two things. First of all, just to make it very clear for our listeners, um, this the chiropractor did perform uh, manual spinal manipulation uh, on the neck, so that's that's clear in the um, in the court accounts, uh, and that patient did have um, uh, an incident and required resuscitation on their second visit. So that those those things we know did occur. That's correct. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, the you don't know anything about the technique though. The technique you know. is not described to us. All we can assume is by the information in the judgment was that um, the neck was manipulated on both sides and a popping or cracking sound was heard. Yes, that's it. Yeah, and the and, whole... and you should also we should also make sure before you go any further, we should make sure that the audience is aware of the fact that. There was no adverse response following the first consultation. Indeed, quite the contrary. The patient even gave evidence to the fact that they had improved yes. when they presented for their second consultation four days later on the 26th of January. And this all leads to the, that, uh, you know, uh, I guess the argument and the, the uh, controversy over whether this or these sorts of things are temporal or causal in their relationship. Is it that the patient was in the chiropractic's chiropractor's office just at the wrong time and this was already something that was waiting to happen or was it through the process of providing that care that created this problem in the first place and really very very interestingly the forensic scientists have seemed to uh, strongly support the idea of a potential temporal rather than causal relationship can you give an update first of all before we talk more about how this has played out in this case what is the research and the thinking around these things at this point in time look there was a paper produced and i wish a chiropractor had written it but in, on the other hand perhaps it's good a chiropractor didn't write it back in 2016 a chap called Ephraim church who was a neurosurgical uh, registrar at the time over in the states and they published uh, an article um, and it was so chiropractic manipulation and cervical artery dissection, no case for causation. Hmm. Now, now, we need to take that, um, we need to dismantle that quite carefully because what we're saying is that um, you cannot establish um, whether a dissection is actually in evolution or whether, in fact, the dissection was caused during the time of the process of treatment. But, but no case for causation means that there are so many other potential events that can create the dissection that to pin it down to a chiropractic uh, consultation and an event during that consultation is to not link all of the uh, required elements that have to be present. As you've alluded to, in this manner, in this particular matter, um, the first, the neurologist said that, well, listen, it happened whilst he was in the chiropractic office, therefore, surely. Now, the problem is that's the temporal association issue as opposed to the causation issue. And this case really dug down into the fact that there isn't sufficient scientific evidence that's presented at the moment that makes a strong case that this is causation based. Quite the contrary. The 2016 paper, and 
you've read any of my medical legal reports, and I know you probably have not, but it's my favourite bit of literature because it wasn't prepared by a chiropractor. It's prepared by a neurosurgeon. Yeah. So I'm loving that. And as we go through this matter, you will see that um, there was literature presented, particularly by expert number two, that said there simply isn't the data to establish causation from this procedure. Mm. That doesn't mean to say that it couldn't be a contributory element to the process of dissection. Yep. And, and we should make sure people are aware right up off the cuff. One of the problems that we're looking at here is this is a criminal matter requiring the absolute extent of proof. This is beyond reasonable doubt. That means it's the 99% test. You, you need to think that there can be no other possible element that was causative in this in order to win this case. Mm. That, is, that is not the case in civil law. No. Civil law, it's, you know, balance of probabilities. In other words, it's the 51% test. I mean, look, I know there are other causes. Sure, they could have reversed their car and hurt their neck. But look, it happened in your office with your hands on their neck. Really, what's the most likely scenario? And mm. that's often how it plays out. Yeah. Which absolutely. is why it's critical. When we start to do medical legal reviews, I want to know every single element of the patient's presentation to see if I can establish if, in fact, there was sufficient detail to suggest there was a dissection before they presented. And what's happened here is that, unfortunately, we've walked into the problem of an evolving dissection. Mm. Therein lies the kicker. And I think at the before we finish this podcast, we're definitely going to wrap it up with this is what you need to do as a chiropractor to ensure one, you'll recognize these things as best you can if they do walk into your office and two, how to manage them, how to note take so that should things go wrong in a very rare case, you know, you're, you're uh, doing your best by your, your, your patient and also by yourself and your profession. Um, one thing that was confusing in the, um, the document was we've talked about cervical artery dissection so far um, and we haven't nailed it down to vertebral artery or carotid but they mix up the terms a little bit through the court um, document. Tell me about why that's important. Well, look, the first issue is that at first reading of the summaries, before you actually get to the judgment, if you look what the court produces a basic summary, you'd say, oh, hang on a second, this is not a vertebral artery problem at all. This is a carotid artery problem. In fact, unfortunately, they're not even precise enough to say to us, this is an internal carotid artery problem, mm. which is what I would like to see. And so when you're looking at these things, you want an accurate description of the pathology. And, and normally what you can do is go to the hospital documents and say, well, what, is, what, what actually happened? Give me a look at the MRI. Give me a look at the MRI report. And I want to see what the, the actual source documents tell me about the condition. Well, in this particular judgment, the term carotid artery, without distinction between it being internal, external or common, is mentioned 14 times but they also mention then the vertebral arteries mentioned twice and then cervical arteries in general, in general mentioned three times. So whereas I thought, Oh gee, hang on a second. This wasn't a vertebral artery issue at all. This is a carotid artery issue. By the time I really finish reading the entire article, there's an element of doubt brought in. Mm. If we go by the numbers, we can say, well, it looks like it's carotid artery, but for me to be absolutely certain, 
I mean, before we had this podcast, remember I said to you, I need to see a copy of the judgment. I'm not mm. going by someone's summary. Well, I can tell you now, if I'm really going to be certain, I need to see the hospital documents and I'd need to see them translated into English. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I think the if I'm going to bring a, a point to the um, listener's attention, really, one of the things you need to remember is that in discussing whether or not this issue was a spontaneous dissection, which is the direction we're heading in shortly, um, people need to understand that carotid arteries are much more spontaneously, much more frequently encountered spon as a spontaneous dissection than the vertebral arteries. In fact, at least uh, look, the current data that I've read in relation to dissection of the vertebral artery in the community is it's about 1.5 to 2 cases per 100,000 individuals. Whereas the vertebral arteries 2.5 to 3, uh, sorry, the carotid arteries 2.5 to 3 per cases per 100,000. So did I get that right? Vertebral artery 1.5 to 2 cases per 100,000. Carotid artery 2.5 to 3 cases per 100,000. So almost twice the number of cases if, if the literature is a good indication of what's actually happening. Mm. So in suspecting spontaneous dissection, the numbers fall more closely towards the carotid artery, which is what I'm sincerely hoping the 14 to 2 ratio here sustains was the actual problem. And yeah. I think the other thing we need to also remember, please understand, it's both arteries dissected. Now, getting one artery to dissect is as rare as hen's teeth. Getting two arteries to dissect, you know, seriously incapable of giving you a numerical quantum as to what's going on. Yeah. Incapable of giving you, that's how rare we're talking. And yeah. so now we've got to say, was this a, was, you know, is there a connective tissue disorder present here? Because the patient certainly was not tested for that. Um, has it been a case of silent dissections? Uh, I know that many cases, Alan Terrett mentioned in his monogram uh, all those years ago that uh, Mockery described cases of um, multiple dissections in, ver in vertebral arteries as being silent cases. So they could be taking place and no one knows about them. I mean, silent means they're not only not painful, they're not symptomatic. So just to summarise um the findings in the Netherlands, and then I want to sort of have a talk about how this would apply and play out in Australia. Ultimately, the court acquitted the chiropractor on the basis of these things um, happen spontaneously. Um, they made comment that even informed consent on a for for a problem such as this is so rare that that wasn't even required. And I know you've got some strong thoughts on uh, those sorts of things, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, so I guess, and and the other thing you mentioned that this is a, a criminal case. So this is the police taking, um, you know, charging a chiropractor for grievous bodily harm. All these things are different when you come now to a different country and now we have a civil case. So this is where a patient is suing a practitioner. Um, how does this play out in Australia and how might it be different? We, is there lessons to be learned? I would imagine some of the uh, uh, defendants might be very interested to speak to the forensic uh, fellow in the Netherlands to give expert witness <laughs> accounts, that's for sure. Well, look, look. the interesting thing is, of course, that um, it's not so much the different country that's the problem, because when you look at it, uh, the, 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 this case, it appears, ran a civil claim prior to the criminal claim. 
and and it certainly appears the 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 judgment refers to the civil case that took place and the civil case um has the insurer of the chiropractor actually admitting to liability now they don't have balance of probabilities over there they refer to it as the criterion of reasonable attribution but it's basically the same thing it's the 51 percent test now i can only assume and, and here I go, I'm breaking one of my own rules now. I can only assume that if the if the insurer of the chiropractor has admitted liability, there has been a payment of some kind, yes. a settlement. But whether this settlement took place out of court, halfway through a procedural hearing, or or at the completion of this the, the hearing, it it leaves me with this problem of saying if this chap went to court you know, civilly and was successful. Why on earth did it result then in a second trial at a criminal level? Mm. And I can't read too much into it, but it appears that the right to speak was claimed by the patient's son. Now, whether he was doing that because the patient had um, uh, some speech and visual and um, a paral limb paralysis difficulties, and maybe the patient could not speak for themselves and the son thought that they could speak for them, but... In taking, in having had a civil award, and I don't know what the award was, and I don't know what information was presented at the civil claim, one is asking the question, why on earth would you then pursue a criminal prosecution for grievous bodily harm? Because the claim that was made appears to have been made in relation to a criminal compensation. And 4,000 euros, which was what was claimed by... Um, we can't call him the plaintiff in this issue. He's, he's kind of referred to as the victim or the, you know, the declarant. Um, Four thousand euros is not not going to pay your legal fees. No, absolutely, absolutely not. I was I was surprised that the compensation came down that low. Um, uh, but but please remember, not only did it come that low, but because the chiropractor was acquitted, he got nothing. Yes, yes, that's right, and still had to pay his uh, court costs. So they each had to pay their own court costs. So uh, it wasn't a worthwhile venture in the end. I want to now apply this to um, clinical practice. So we've already spoken, you've spoke about the um, potential link of an infective process increasing the risk of these sorts of problems. What are some of the other things that the chiropractor needs to be alert of when a patient presents with neck pain and headaches? Can I just say to you, there are two difficult, the, probably the most difficult clinical presentations you can face is headache and dizziness. Now, the interesting thing is both of those two creatures can be components of a dissection issue. Mm. But, but clearly, if, if you're um, not alert to what Alan Turret used to refer to, you know, um, as the five Ds and the three Ns, so we had... Um, a patient presents if they have um, dysphagia, difficulty swallowing, um, um, dizziness, if they have diplopia, no, double vision, uh, if they have difficulty speaking, dysphagia as opposed to dysphagia, one is speaking, one is swallowing, right? If they have ataxia, any difficulty in terms of their ability to walk straight. If they have nystagmus, there's a flickering of the eyes on lateral gaze. If they have nausea, and we throw nausea and vomiting together. 
um, and if they have numbness. So, and this would be numbness, particularly face or tongue. But also I would question people to be alert to, I used to say, the head pain you don't want to hear about is anterior to the sternocleidomastoid radiating up to the head. Mm. If it's posterior to the sternocleidomastoid, it's more likely to be cervical um, and suboccipital issues that are musculoskeletal. But if it's anterior to the sternocleidomastoid, extra caution is needed, particularly if it radiates up over the temporal region. So, so what are we up to? We need a, we need a global a constellation of symptoms that are neurologically based beyond what this um, judgment has highlighted. Uh, our forensic expert number two saying, well, listen, uh, neck and head headache and neck pain are so common as to not really constitute a concern or contraindication uh, to applying cervical manipulation. But if you've got a patient that's got head and neck pain and dizziness, in fact, if you throw any one of those others in, if they've got head and neck pain, dizziness, head and neck pain, nausea and vomiting, head and neck pain, uh, inability to swallow, head and neck pain, poor speech, head and neck pain, ataxia. Head, do you know the, it's the end or the additional, what we used to, what we used to say um, were associated symptoms. How many associated symptoms come with this package? Now, you can't just depend upon a patient telling you. You've actually got to ask and make them negate what you're saying. And there should be, at least on your, on your examination and clinical records, a tick sheet. So if, you, if you're wondering, you know, have I got the nausea? Have I got the dizziness? I've got the blurred vision. I've got the ataxia. I've got, have I got, can I tick all those off and get them out of here? So um, really speaking, if, uh, if you can make sure your history, along with what you record after you've say, said you it, it, it's you've got to have the backup that when push comes to shove i know and everyone can see your history process was good and your examination process was good um so so what is the first major criteria for a person to do the major criteria is to not walk into the problem mm. you can't not walk into the problem if you haven't done a proper history and examination process before you get started. Yep. Any neurologist will tell you the way to diagnose a headache isn't with special imaging. You diagnose a headache by asking questions. Yep. Right. Ditto for us. And if you get alerts, you need to reformat your treatment process. <laughs> I want to talk about patient note-taking, and I want you, I've heard you say this before, your fabulous quote about how a company like Guild, for example, can defend a chiropractor based on their notes. And it was it when st something like, <laughs> in fact, I'm not going to jump in. I'm, I, th I think you might know what I'm talking about, do you? Well, yes, you're going to say, good notes, good defense, poor notes, poor defense, no notes, no defense. And that's, <laughs> that's it, isn't it? Thinking. And it's as simple as that. It really is as simple as that. Well, Do you, you know, go ahead. Um, well, well, no, keep, keep that because I was going to go on to something else. So finish off what you're going to well, say there. Well, on top of the notes, you've also got to have this discussion about what level of, of informed consent you actually need. Yeah. And, and really speaking, um, technically, 
the, the chiropractic code of conduct doesn't even call for you to have a written consent. Mm. It does require you have a clinical record, written clinical record, but consent legally can be obtained verbally. The problem you face is that when it comes to push or, or shove, it, it comes down to the he said, she said, or yep. I said, they said, and that's no good. Mm. At least if you've got a document that highlights the essential consent issues on that document and it's signed by the patient and the chiropractor, at least we've got something to fall back on. Otherwise, mm. we've got nothing. And you just can't allow that to happen. Now, people tell you the consent form of itself is not the consent process because the consent form usually will rattle off a whole bunch of things that are totally irrelevant. Yep. I mean, there's no point getting consent to lumbar disc herniation if they've come in for a neck problem and we're adjusting the neck and we've got a complication or an adverse event from a cervical spine adjustment. Yep. I don't care whether you've got lumbar spine herniation on your... We've got to have it relevant. So it's great if your consent form is comprehensive, but then on the bottom it says discussed CVA or discussed dizziness issues, Yeah. right? Or, you know, discuss stroke potential because that then tells me, ah, someone's had a focused, a focused informed consent process. Let's imagine that a patient presents with, um, and the chiropractor is suspicious about the presentation, that this may be a vascular uh, issue that they're looking at. Um, Doppler ultrasound is obviously one way of looking something if there wasn't concerns that this is um, an urgent matter. Um, and obviously, I guess, a referral to a hospital if there was concern that um, there was a stroke in play already. Do you think chiropractors uh, refer enough for Doppler ultrasounds? Are they, do you think they are of value in these sorts of cases? You know, I remember Haynes presenting his paper on Doppler ultrasound out of Western Australia years and years and years ago. Um, it's just that I could never fully satisfy myself about the um, sensitivity and specificity of the test to reveal what it was we're trying to actually disclose in terms of uh, vascular damage or potential vascular damage in the neck. Uh, I know it's being reconsidered again now. Um, Look, the Doppler ultrasound is going to show you flow rates, and I wouldn't suggest that I'm the person to speak to about the uh, current state of affairs of Doppler ultrasound, but um, the problem with arterial dissection detection is that everyone will tell you that it's, it's largely indetectable, and this case, this case has actually highlighted that. Yeah. We, we, make our, we make our adjustments to clinical management on the suspicion of certain tests. I mean, how many times have we ma ma manually adjusted somebody that suffers from dizziness and you get a sensational result? I think the literature says something like 68% of um, vertiginous symptoms are neck-driven. Now, uh, and I know, I, I, I don't think I could count the number of people I've adjusted over 40-something years that presented predominantly with neck pain uh, and some dizziness. The point is... Um, You've got to go about your technique with a defensive attitude, not a gung-ho attitude. In fact, it would be far cleverer clinically and more appropriate clinically if you've got suspicions of the, even the slightest likelihood 
of a vascular concern, and let me say it may not be just, it might not be dissection, it might just be um, a small amount of ischemia, for instance, right? Because it, Lee in his review of patients said that se- dissection is almost, almost always a painful event. Of course, blood vessels have pain-sensitive um, wall structures, right? And, and Lee used to say that um, acute onset of pain is an accurate index of the moment of dissection. And I think it was 77% of his cases that he reviewed had a painful issue in the local part of the neck where the dissection took place. So a sharp presenting pain, and then you back up all these other symptoms, should raise your index of suspicion to say, right, I'm not going to do a manual adjustment on this today. I'm going to do some myofascial techniques to see what happens. Mm. So rather than saying, how do I feel about ultrasound as a diagnostic test, I'd rather drag you back to your clinical suspicion and and your your thoroughness in your um, history and examination processes. Yep. And then and then say, listen, why don't we just why don't we do a very conservative approach to case management here and see how we go, providing, of course, you do not have any of those red flag signs. Mm. We could call, I shouldn't call them yellow flags because that tends to suggest psychosocial issues. But what are we going to what are we going to call? What flag colour are we going to give the <laughs> thing that says "whoa"? Let's call it a pink flag. In other words, there's a suspicion here. I'm not happy enough. Caution first. Yeah. Now, you would have to say then, okay, what's the what's the accurate test? And and I've got to tell you, um, I did a case in the coronial court in South Australia some years ago about a patient who saw a chiropractor supposedly had a vessel dissection during treatment. Um, and I'm really cutting this short, I'm sorry to tell you, but in hospital, the patient is either dead or nearly dead, but nonetheless, an angi- a cervical angiogram's done, CVA, uh, a CT angiogram, and a left vertebral artery dissection is diagnosed from the angiogram. The patient then dies. And so they're then handed over to Dr. John Gilbert, who's a neuropathologist that does the autopsy on the patient. And Dr. John Gilbert is good enough to actually extract the vertebral arteries out of the patient's neck. And he said, I don't know what you guys are talking about, but I've examined these arteries both macroscopically and microscopically, and I can tell you there is not even any sign of a dissection. Not only that, there's no sign of any vasculitis. So I don't know what blocked this artery, but it certainly wasn't any damage to the artery. So if you're asking me, how, how are we going to diagnose vertebral artery dissection? Can we use an ultrasound? Can I just say, if you can get it wrong with a CT angiogram, <laughs> I'm not sure how right you're going to get it with an ultrasound. Yes. And, and really speaking, now you need to have another podcast with someone updating you about what ultrasound can give you. really give you in relation to diagnostic accuracy or, if you like, index of suspicion. But um, can I just say, interestingly enough, when you're trying to prove something, you need a lot of cases to prove it. But when I'm trying to disprove something, I need one. And the chiropractor that went through that down in South Australia, as far as I'm concerned, is an absolute hero because he's given me a case with which I can now say 
you cannot use imaging studies to definitively diagnose arterial dissection. And to their credit, radiologists do not say that. Yep. What they say is that the findings we're seeing on this particular is suggestive of, or it's indicative of. It doesn't mean you've actually got it because I can show you a case in which they said it was, and in fact, it wasn't. <laughs> so it's it's really... Um, I, I do want to I do want to give you a couple of statements that were made out of this case that I thought were, were fantastic, and this once again comes from expert to our forensic physician. Uh, he said the medical and scientific literature is not unequivocal about the risks of chiropractic treatment of the neck, and therefore no scientifically substantiated statement can be made about this. He said where complications of dissections occur during treatment, it is not possible to verify whether the complications would have occurred spontaneously even without chiropractic treatment. He said dissections are sometimes already present but not yet manifest. And he said luxating factors, that's the everyday factors, may consist of everyday movements. And a cervical manipulation can also influence the course of an already existing dissection. And so therefore he says it's unknown whether chiropractic manipulation of the neck can cause dissection in patients who previously did not have a dissection in progress. In other words, remember the old discussion that used to be a chiropractic adjustment to the lumbar spine can't actually rupture a lumbar disc. We used to say it, it, we can't rupture a normal lumbar disc. Mm. Guess what, though? If there's one in process, yep. if you, you can step help in a way. You can exacerbate it. Mm. I remember my first mentor in chiropractic was Bernie Lyle, and he used to say, there's a reason why we call this the litigation role. It wasn't because we caused a dissection. It's because we potentially exacerbated one that was in evolution. Mm. And so I thought some of the statements that were made there uh, were really good. In fact, I've got to say, just to finally dissect this is issue about causation, the, the, the temporal association and the causation issue, the first expert, the neurologist, he was criticised on the basis that he's, in his report, he interpreted a temporal relationship as a causal one. Mm. Now, he was criticised by everybody for that. Yay. About time. Well, the next thing he said was his research didn't focus on the question of causality but was drawn up with the aim of determining the complaints and limitations of the patient in the neurological field. And so expert number two this is really good. The forensic physician criticised the neurologist for not providing sufficient substantiation on the basis of which he established that dissections were caused by manipulation. And as I've said in my little article for you, in other words, his opinion wasn't good enough. No. You know, you can't just say, I mean, how many of us have had patients walk into our clinic? Potentially, I had, walk, I had a patient on the steps of my clinic have an epileptic fit. I've had another patient have a seizure sitting in the cubicle, the sister of a patient, watching me adjust the sister and the lady on the seat, not the patient, has a seizure. <laughs> My goodness. So, and, and I know Alan Terrett's also got numerous articles and, and, and examples of how those types of coincidental events can take place. Um, John, I want. Oh, it's, it seems to come back to the rule, no matter what, how the case presents. If you've got, if you've been thorough, if you've been vigilant, 
if you've taken great notes, if you've done a good, good assessment, both the patient and you are going to end up better off. Do you have any sort of parting wisdom before we wrap this one uh, up today? Uh, look, if we're trying to summarise what we've said today, really it comes down to this, doesn't it? And all, And can I just say, we're not telling anybody anything they don't already know. I truly believe that. Yeah. What we're trying to do here is give people reminders that I'm, of issues that they might have left behind as a consequence of being in practice for a certain amount of time and having become, well, dare I say, blasé. Mm. I won't say the familiarity has produced contempt, but they can become blasé and, and they might actually be rushed and you might have too many and you might have a secretary that's saying, come on, let's get on with it. Well, what we should be getting on with is making sure your processes, you need to make sure your history and examination processes are good, that your record keeping can substantiate scrutiny. Mm. Will it tolerate me looking at it and saying, gee, they presented with this. You and I both know that the tests for this condition are A, B, C and D. Why did you only do A? Do you know what I mean? It's like saying... Oh, gee, um, patient presented with um, headache, blurred vision, nausea. Did we question? Did we question the patient properly further about the other issues that might have been attached to this? Uh, did we take a blood pressure if necessary? Although I've got to tell you, taking blood pressure doesn't tell you a whole lot about arterial dissection potentiality. Mm. So, so good history, good examination, and can I just say by good, I don't have routine anything. No routine examinations, thank you. You want a focused examination based on what you just heard. Yeah. Then you need to make sure that your records are A, readable, B, comprehensive. And then we need to make sure that the follow-up is good. If something goes wrong, look what this guy did. We know that in this instance, the patient became unwell during the time of the um, second consultation and then... They lost consciousness. So what does this guy do? He resuscitates the patient, gets an ambulance in, makes sure they're transferred straight to a hospital. Mm. We, don't, we don't muck around with, I'll just watch them for a while. Mm. We certainly don't walk back in and adjust them the other way. <laughs> okay? We actually get proper emergency care when it's necessary. There is no harm in dialing triple O, and I would add to that, if you've ever had to dial triple O and an ambulance has shown up, ask the ambulance officer which hospital you're going to and ring ahead, letting them know what's coming in and what you all that does is show how clinically competent you are and how you're caring for the patient's best interests. Yep. And if you've got a good clinical record and a good protocol, what more can be asked of you? Mm-hmm. Really? Oh, I think it's a great way to sum it up, John. And look, thank you so much for your time today. Really uh, love our conversations and really appreciate uh, your wisdom and uh, that you've spent the time sharing that with our listeners today. Um, thank you again and, uh, and good luck with uh, whatever comes next for you. Yeah, thank you very much indeed, Anthony. And uh, I'd like to uh, wish everyone who's listening well as, uh, as well. And uh, here's hoping that the 2022 year I'm going to say leaves 2021 for dead. And I hope you understand what I mean by that. <laughs> but thanks very much, everyone. 
Good on you, John. Uh, well, that's it for Thank me. You. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence and look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast.